Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today I'm coming from an unusual venue. I'm actually in a hotel room. I'm in specifically the River Spirit Resort, looking out right now over the beautiful Arkansas River. If some of you are saying, oh, well, he's obviously in Arkansas. I'm not in Arkansas. I'm actually in Oklahoma. I am in Tulsa. This uh, facility, owned by the Muscogee Creek Nation, is the venue for the 2019 Tribal Public Health Conference. It's an event being put on by the Southern Plains Tribal Health Board in collaboration with a group called Seventh Generation. The event has already gotten off to a great start. The pre-conference sessions are taking place right now, and I'm basically sharing with you my enthusiasm for what's happening. The theme of the meetings are strength in community, power in connection. Strength in community, power in connection. And although we do not yet have our booth up, the booth setup will take place tomorrow morning, and we're hoping to record some shows in that venue interviewing some of the folks who are presenting and representing various tribal and non-tribal enterprises that are here. I just had the privilege of sitting in on a great session that really set the stage for the theme. Remember that theme, Strength and Community, Power and Connection. It was actually a presentation made by a individual, Tim Zientek, who represents the citizen Potawatomi Nation. He's actually their emergency manager for the tribe, and jointly presented with him by Mike Potter, who actually works for the State Health Department here in Oklahoma. He's the local emergency response coordinator for a number of counties that take in the region where the citizen Potawatomi Nation is based. What I found so fascinating about the presentation that these two gentlemen did. They were really talking about partnerships. How can people in Indian country partner with state organizations, federal organizations? How can people work together? And I found it so encouraging because today there is so much divisiveness, so much, well, hate-mongering, if you want to use the term, that it was really great to see people really representing different ends of the, the spectrum with a common theme. Because over and over again, as I listen to these two gentlemen speak about their vision, as I listen to Tim speaking about from a Native perspective, as I listen to Mike speaking from a, a local and a state health department perspective, there was a theme that continued to emerge. And that theme was basically, let's work together to help people. Let's work together to help people, whether they're Native, whether they're non-Native. Let me tell you what was so fascinating, too, is the way the program started, the way their presentation started, you might have thought they were not going to go down that path because they didn't mince any words in speaking about the history of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. We were brought through a documentary video 
back into the history of a people that was once connected with other tribal people groups in the Great Lake regions. Whether you've heard the term of Chippewa, Ojibwe, Potawatomis were, were part of that same people group. The documentary began in what would be today's state of Indiana. It talked about the Potawatomi people and their historical context, shared about their early interactions with Europeans, and then moved us into the 1800s in that era of forced relocation. They told of how some 800 Potawatomi tribal members were forcibly removed from the Great Lakes region, ultimately ending up in what would be today Oklahoma, some 660 miles traversing some three states, people regardless of age, infants, children, older individuals. The way it was presented, though, was, I have to admit, different from many presentations that have been made or filmed or reenacted of individuals who have been oppressed or mistreated. It was clear. The film had no intention of amplifying the cruelty of those individuals of European roots who had forcibly removed these Native Americans from their homes. They basically simply stated the facts. This number left. This many die, and and the numbers were in the dozens who died along the way. They didn't talk, like I said, about cruelty from the Europeans. But they emphasized one aspect that I think is especially relevant and why they drew from it in this presentation. They emphasized the promises that were made. They emphasized the dialogue or lack of dialogue with federal and local agencies that were representing the U.S. government. And really they painted a picture, I think, very gently, very tastefully, very kindly of why so many Native Americans historically have every reason to doubt the sincerity of government organizations. The promises that were made, the homes that would be waiting for them when they arrived in Indian territories, not there. The things that were said, the things that were done in a, quote, legal fashion that misrepresented Native interests. But with that background, instead of, again, emphasizing the historical trauma, these two gentlemen, representing Native and non-Native roots, basically came back to their common theme. Regardless of what has happened in the past, people have needs today. And especially when we speak about emergencies and emergency response, there is every reason in the world for tribal people and for those not of Native roots to partner together. What I found especially remarkable 
as these two gentlemen shared their stories from their individual perspectives. Mike Potter, representing the State Health Department, at one point he said something like this. He said, what bothers me, what bothers me, representing the State Health Department, is that the citizen Potawatomi Nation helps us so much, but we often don't have many ways to give back. We don't often have so many ways to reach out and give back to the tribes. Now, some of you are listening. You're saying, what do you mean? What's going on here? Well, he's speaking in the context of emergency preparedness. And the point he was making is he went through example after example. The Potawatomi Nation would rise to certain occasions and help the community. He talked about a snowstorm that came to the area. And Oklahoma, having lived here myself for over a decade, is um, is not like Minnesota or Maine, other places where I've lived. Uh, snow hits Oklahoma a lot harder than some of these states that are used to handling a lot of snow. But he shared how he had awakened early one morning, wondering how he was going to take care of some of the, the public access needs. And Mike gets a a call from Tim with the citizen Potawatomi Nation who tells him, hey, don't worry, we've plowed, we've cleaned this whole public health facility that um, was going to need snow removal. Already done. It was such a beautiful illustration of what partnerships can do. But there were countless examples of this. Well, countless. I'm exaggerating two-hour program. But let me give you some others. And although Mike, in humility, was speaking about what Native peoples brought to the table, there were plenty of opportunities where the two of them talked about collaborations. What about infectious diseases? This is really one of the serious emergency response areas of our era. We talk about bioterrorism. We talk about some of these infectious diseases that could be imported. Some of you think back a number of years to the Ebola scare when there were worries that this foreign disease that we've never seen before, uh, most of us in our lifetime, I say seen as far as our immune systems, would be brought into our communities. And they shared about collaboration. They talked about immunization clinics, how the citizen Potawatomi Nation was buying thousands, tens of thousands of uh, of flu shots. And then the state health department was helping provide staff to administer them, as well as providing the syringes, the needles, just talking about partnerships. Now, some of you, when I mentioned vaccinations, you've been listening to me for many years, and you know that my orientation is focused on more natural therapies. And so some people, when we speak about vaccinations, they say, oh, that doesn't sound all that natural to me. And I know this is really a hot topic today in our country and even beyond. Let me make something very clear. I've looked at the data, again, even stepped away from the microphone and just looked at some of the recent research, just confirming what we've seen in the public health community. And that is that as a general practice, on a population level, vaccinations save lives, they save money. I know anytime you put something foreign into your body, whether it's a medication, whether it's an injection, there is the risk of side effects 
nobody is going to say that's not the case. In fact, any time we ever administered a vaccination in a clinic that I was working at, we would do some kind of screening, make sure that a person was not at some high risk of some kind of complication from a vaccination. Having said all that, there's a lot of misinformation that is also going on out there telling people that vaccinations are all evil, that they have had no role in making a difference in infectious diseases. And I will just say categorically, that is nonsense, okay? Nor is it correct to say that vaccinations are totally safe for every individual. That's why we do some individual risk assessment. So to make the matter very plain, when I hear about partnerships in Indian country, tribal partners, government partners, working together, immunizing people. In general, we're talking about a health-enhancing practice in populations, and I will stand by that statement. Why I tell you this is because what I just saw an example of and what I'm looking forward to seeing more of at the Tribal Public Health Conference is saying, where can we come together? Where can we work together? Whether you're Native, whether you're non-Native, can you work together in a wildfire? Examples of that. Can you work together when there's a water crisis? A number of stories were shared where tribal entities came up to the plate and they helped communities. Sure, there were some tribal members in those communities, but there were a lot of non-tribal members. And what I liked about what, uh, what Tim said, basically he said, Share resources, share responsibilities, share pain, share success. He said, we rely on each other, speaking of tribal and non-tribal entities, and we trust each other. Such a great message as we're going into this conference, the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019, being held here in Tulsa. I hope to be doing a number of interviews right from this venue, and I encourage you to stay by. The message for you from this first segment is start looking around if you don't have trust because people have betrayed their trust. Reach out to them anyway. Try to build dialogue. Try to build relationships, and let's see what differences we can make. More on today's edition of American Indian Living coming from the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm Dr. DeRose. We will be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. 
There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Dr. David DeRose back with you from the venue of the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019 taking place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I am actually back in my room right here at the River Spirit Resort looking out over the Arkansas River again. I am back here after having taken in some more exciting material. I was there at the pre-conference sessions. I based that first segment on my experience there. Now uh, I'm sitting here having completed the first full day of the regular conference. It was a busy one for me just to give you a flavor for it. A lot happening, a number of concurrent sessions, a number of general sessions, and I actually spent a fair amount of time preparing for a talk that I gave here at this venue. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. My session was entitled, Using a Comprehensive Wellness Model as a Diabetes Primary Prevention Strategy in Indian Country. If that just sounds like a lot of medical gobbledygook, I will try to make it practical for you before we get too much further along in today's show. But i got to tell you about something really exciting that I caught part of this morning. One of the general presentations today was given by a gentleman by the name of Jeff Linkenbach. Dr. Linkenbach is with a group called the Montana Institute. His presentation was entitled, Using the Science of the Positive to Cultivate Hope. And HOPE is an acronym which stands for Health Outcomes of positive experiences. Let me tell you what I took away from the portion of Dr. Linkenbach's presentation that I was privileged to catch. Linkenbach talked about these adverse childhood experiences. You've all heard about them, when bad things happen in our childhood. We featured this on previous shows on American Indian Living. What was so encouraging about the material he was sharing is he was relating how good experiences 
can buffer the bad experiences. So if you look at, for example, depression, and you see someone, if they've got a lot of adverse childhood experiences, if their parents went through a divorce, if they're a uh, very unstable home life, et cetera, et cetera, they are at higher risk of depression. But if you start putting positive experiences into that child's life, it actually decreases their long-term risk of depression and other adverse consequences. In other words, connecting with the community, having supportive relationships. And it fit so perfectly with this theme, strength in community, power in connection. It got my mind going as I was sitting in that uh, that venue about what can I do to strengthen my community? What can I do for young people in the community settings in which I find myself? So hopefully just that little bit of a a glimpse of really a fascinating presentation gets you stimulated and take me to task because I had the privilege of talking with Dr. Linkenbach after his presentation. I said, I would love to get you on American Indian Living. And although we were not able to pull off a live interview in this venue, hopefully we can get Dr. Linkenbach on the phone and really delve into this amazing research. He's doing it uh, in collaboration with groups like the Centers for Disease Control and others. It's just really exciting stuff. And the bottom line message, trying to give you some good news, exciting things that we're hearing here. Listen, it doesn't matter if you've had bad experiences in life. Uh, I know you're thinking, what do you mean it doesn't matter? I'm saying it doesn't have to plague you. It doesn't have to run you down. If you are not finding yourself also in health-enhancing relationships, here's what I'm going to say to you. You find out what you can do to enhance the health of your community. And I believe you'll find that in doing that, it will encourage yourself. Let me just tell you a true story. I've told it before in a number of venues, but it was powerful in my life. I was a medical student at the time, and I was in my room. I was, I was feeling kind of depressed. I don't know what it was. I don't know if I was looking at how much I had to learn as a medical student and just feeling overwhelmed. I know I had that feeling in the past. I don't know what was going on that day, but I do know I was feeling discouraged. Someone came into my room. I was in a dorm at the time. This person came into my room, and I realized that they were worse off than I was. So what do you do in a situation like that? I mean, I started to try to encourage this person, try to lift their mood, try to brighten their day. When this person walked out of my room, he, to my knowledge, had not said anything encouraging to me. I was doing the talking. I was trying to encourage him. But what I found is that I myself had been encouraged. My discouragement had lifted because I had come into community with someone else who I was trying to help. Here's my message. We can look at all these adverse childhood experiences. We can say, yes, they're buffered by good experiences in the community. And you can feel, you can feel that you got a, you got dealt a bad hand twice because all kinds of bad things happen to you and you don't have these positive nurturing relationships either. You don't have close connections with friends. You are not tied to cultural things happening in your community. What I'm saying is you can make a difference in your own outlook by saying, hey, if I'm not getting this support, maybe I should try to support other people. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just telling you, from my own experience and from the experience of others, it can be a powerful factor. Well, that brings us to my presentation. I want to explore this with you in some detail because I think you will find encouragement in it. Again, the presentation I just gave, 
using a comprehensive wellness model as a diabetes primary prevention strategy in Indian country. Let me just break down the title, and then I'll tell you what I talked about, some exciting stuff that I related. It's exciting not just because I've been involved with it, some things independent of me, as you'll soon see. But the title reflects this. We do a lot with addressing diabetes once it occurs. Sometimes in medical circles, we call that secondary prevention. Maybe it's picking up on diabetes early. That would be an example of secondary prevention, identifying the disease and then trying to make a difference with it. Sometimes we use the term tertiary prevention. The idea is we're intervening in disease processes after they've already begun. We're identifying the disease process and then taking steps to address it. Primary prevention is where we prevent a disease process from ever occurring. So my presentation was going to look at what we can do in Indian country, and I'll say to you, if you're not Native, it applies to people who are not Native as well. It applies to other communities that don't have any Native American representation. Here's the idea. Primary prevention. What is the strategy? In the title, it's a comprehensive wellness model. Comprehensive wellness model. So, in my presentation and also in some time I had earlier today, just give you a little bit of a little bit more background. One of the major sponsors for this event was the Seventh Day Adventist Church. Many of you may realize I am a Seventh Day Adventist. And the speaker at the noon lunch time was Bob Burnett, someone who I've worked closely with over the years. Bob is someone who is a mover and driver in Indian country. He is Onondaga himself. He has worked with many people in the political sphere, in the health services sphere, and just an incredible guy. So Bob was sharing some up front, but before he gave his presentation, he came to me and he said, I was only planning on a short talk, like 10 minutes. The organizers are saying, I'm going to have much more time, so I would like you, Dr. DeRose, to come up and, uh, and help. So I said, I'd be willing to. Just call me up. When I came up, I really shared some of the things that I was planning to share in my talk later in the afternoon. We had a larger audience there, and some of the stories were just so compelling. I started out with a true story that happened to me some years ago. I was attending a Native conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And those of you familiar with Albuquerque and many towns in the West, where they may not get, well huge amounts of rain all year long, they can still have flash flooding. In New Mexico, they talk about the monsoon season. There are large conduits for water. Some people call them huge drainage ditches. Other people call them washes. They are concrete structures that can carry large amounts of water. And one morning as I was out exercising in Albuquerque, saw a young man who was taking debris out of the drainage ditch. And I stopped, and as I sometimes do when I see someone serving the community, I, I said, thank you, you know, thanks for, for cleaning up. And you say, well, that was a weird thing for you to say. You didn't live in Albuquerque, but I just appreciate it, seeing somebody making the place better. He said something like this then. He said, don't thank me. I have to do this. You might say, well, was he a public servant? Was he getting paid for it? Didn't really like his job? No, the amazing story came out. The amazing story was this. Some years before, a dear friend of his 
had been swept away in one of those washes. Emergency responders had gotten to a bridge that was downstream of where his friend was floating at a rapid rate. The emergency responders got there before the young man was to go under the bridge, and they reached down. And as I recall the story, a hand had actually grabbed him by the hand. They were ready to pull him out of the rushing waters when all of a sudden a large piece of furniture, a sofa, hit that young man, removed him from the grasp of the rescuer, and led to his death. Years later now, a young man still cleaning ditches of debris. Why? Because he doesn't want someone else to suffer the fate his friend suffered. We're going to come back to that story. It's a metaphor for things happening in your community and mine. I'll tell you where I took it. we got more coming up on today's edition of American Indian Living. Stay tuned. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose from the venue of the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're doing a little bit 
different program today. Typically, this is a guest-driven show. Today, you're hearing from me. And not only have I been reporting on what's been happening at this venue, this exciting venue, but also, but also, I've been sharing with you some things that I had the privilege to share in this very place. Again, if you're just joining me, beautiful venue. Uh, I'm especially saying that because just a few days ago, I was in a large urban area. Even when I went out to exercise in the mornings, I was uh, walking around concrete and buildings and lots of cars. It is just a welcome and refreshing sight to be able to look out the window of the River Spirit Resort here and see the beautiful Arkansas River. Really is very, very pretty scene out my window here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Before we stepped away for the break, I told you about a young man that I met some years ago in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had a mission. He had a vision to clean debris, especially large pieces of debris, discarded furniture, discarded boards, other things that people had just chucked in these drainage ditches that then would get filled with swirling waters during the monsoon season of New Mexico. His motivation was the memory of a friend who had died because a piece of debris struck him before he could be rescued. Now, I know I told you that story is a metaphor, and let me explain why. And this is where I went, really, in my presentation this afternoon. I asked the question of those in my breakout group, are there still factors in the environment, sofas, if you will, that will endanger many lives in the future? So here we're beginning to talk about diabetes. How do we prevent diabetes from ever occurring? And I'm asking a question. Are there things in our environment that are like those discarded sofas? We overlook them, but they come back to haunt us. As I was speaking with the group, I asked them some questions. I just told about my own experience. I said, I've noticed over the years, I get a new job. I work in a new place. I visit somewhere for the first time. You notice all the problems. You notice that the wallpaper on the wall is peeling. You notice that there is a, a defect in the carpeting. But after you start going back and forth to that same place, you become blind to some of those things that you once noticed. Are you following along with me? If you're not, let me tell you the other example I gave. I talked about people. You'll meet a person for the first time, and you may say, that person talks really strange. They, they have a strange accent. They, they maybe have some kind of a, a speech impediment. Maybe you're thinking about that when you first meet them, but you get to know them. They become your friend. You stop thinking anything about their speech, unless it's something glaring that bothers you. But then if you introduce them to someone else, that person may pull you aside and say, what's going on with that person's speech? You say, oh, yeah, yeah. You say to yourself, yeah, I do remember when I first met them, that seemed a little strange to me as well. You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. Let's put it this way. Familiarity sometimes causes us to drop our guard. So, what does all this have to do with preventing diabetes in the first place? My contention is that in our communities, whether we're in Indian country or anywhere else, we have all kinds of risk factors for chronic disease that we just say are part of our environment. It's just the way we are. It's just how we live. It's just who I am. And what I'm trying to challenge people to do in my work is to step back and reassess what we're doing. 
I shared my own story here in Oklahoma because over 20 years ago, I was working outside of New York City and I was invited to come to Oklahoma. I shared with with the audience, many of whom were Oklahomans, I said, you know, the people in New York City, they couldn't understand what the attraction was coming to Oklahoma. I mean, it's just not one of those places that most people put on their, you know, so-called bucket list. But I really had a good time here in Oklahoma. We helped open up a center called the Lifestyle Center of America. And I told the folks in my session today about some of the remarkable things we saw. We were operating a state-of-the-art medical facility. It was focused on lifestyle change. We would have people come with us. They'd live with us for two and a half weeks, typically. And we would help them with their diabetes, their high blood pressure, their weight issues. I shared with the audience today some of the amazing things we saw. I put up a chart, and I'll give you some of the high points of it. We looked at people who came through our program over the first four years. It was something like four or 500 people. And we looked at those who had come with elevated cholesterol readings, numbers over 200. What happened in two weeks' time to their cholesterol levels? On average, they dropped their cholesterol 34 points or 14%. That's without medications. Those individuals who had high triglycerides, and we'll talk about, we'll talk more about this particular blood fat as we continue our discussion on today's show. Triglycerides have been linked to cardiovascular disease risk. Okay, so we're speaking about risk to your blood vessels, to your heart. Individuals with high triglycerides, these were people in the range of 200 to 1,000. Those are fasting levels of a blood fat. Average person in that group had a triglyceride level over 300, 307.9 to be exact in our analysis. They dropped their triglycerides 82 points in just two weeks. That's over 25%. We saw people losing significant amounts of weight. Those individuals that most needed to lose weight, we say a BMI over 30, they lost 11 pounds. 11 pounds. So, okay, you're seeing all these changes, but the topic was about diabetes. What did we see about diabetes? I brought the audience back to research that we had done some 20 years ago It was a case series of 30 consecutive patients who came to the Lifestyle Center of America with significant diabetic neuropathy. So they had nerve damage from their diabetes, 30 consecutive people. 15 of them happened to be men, 15 women. The average age was 63, right around 63. Most all of them had type 2 diabetes. What they did when they showed up at our facility... We had them fill out what we call a visual analog scale. That's simply a fancy name for having a chart where you take a line and you mark off on that line, a 0 to 10 line, how severe your neuropathy symptoms are. We looked at specific symptoms like numbness, like tingling, and you'd mark somewhere between 0 and 10. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I'm familiar with this. When I go to my doctor and I'm having pain... The doctor asked me to rate my pain on a scale of 0 to 10. It's the same idea, only the difference with a visual analog scale is it's just a line. So you can mark a 5.3. You wouldn't wouldn't say your pain is a 5.3, but if you're marking on a scale 
you might end up marking it a 7.2. What we did is we'd actually measure that, the distance you went and, and assign it a score. We would then do the same thing two weeks later at the end of the program. What did we find? We found an amazing 20 to 45% improvement in neuropathy symptoms. And this is with a lifestyle program. This is not giving people more drugs, okay? Their numbness was getting better. The uh, deep marrow pain that many of them complained of was getting better. The sensitivity to light touch was getting better. Do you catch the picture? What was so significant about this work, as I told the audience today, was that we were looking at lifestyle factors in people that already had diabetes. But my concern was, what about those people who hadn't come? They had diabetes, but they hadn't gotten serious enough about it. And I shared with the group what was so tragic is that we would have people come to our center They would make dramatic progress, dramatic improvement, but they had already had their legs amputated. We couldn't make the legs come back. They would come with blindness that was irreversible, or they'd come with end-stage kidney failure on dialysis. And I always thought it was so tragic to see individuals with irreversible complications who couldn't, couldn't ever reverse those complications. But, but, here they were. Their diabetes was being reversed. Their numbers were dramatically better. It likely would have prevented them from ever having had those complications had they gotten serious about the condition before they had those severe, irreversible results. So you say, What does this all have to do with primary prevention? What does it have to do with preventing diabetes in the first place? I was trying to make a case with the health professionals and and tribal leaders who were there today with me to say, what can we do on a community level to help our communities be healthier? And what I shared with them is an exciting venture that we have right now in Indian country. We're actually helping tribes to have resources to use a comprehensive wellness model to try to attract people in their communities to get healthier, not because they've already got diabetes or already have high blood pressure or already have had a heart attack, but just to be healthier and to connect it with looking better, feeling better, functioning better. These are the things that really motivate people. You you say, how are we doing that? I shared with them a free resource that we had in this venue. So don't call me up and say, Dr. DeRose, I want my free book because it was something we were giving out in this setting. You can get the book. It's called The Methuselah Factor, but we were giving it out free. We were also giving out a companion DVD called Longevity Plus. With this book and this video, people can put on a program for their tribe, for their community, and you say, well, what kind of program is it? It's a program that is designed to improve something called hemorrheology. Hemorrheology. You heard me right. You say, what does that mean? This sounds very technical. Why would any community person go to a lecture on hemorrheology? Hemorrheology is simply the science of blood fluidity. And because I found over the years in speaking about this that many people have a hard time remembering 
hemorrheology, I say, listen, just call it the Methuselah factor. Some of you may realize that in the Bible, the longest-lived person was someone named Methuselah, the longest-lived on this planet, if you will. Methuselah, you've heard the expression, as old as Methuselah. Here's what I've told people, and I will stand by this. I don't know what else Methuselah had going for him, but as a scientist, as a clinician, I am certain that Methuselah had good hemorrheology. He had good blood fluidity. So the Methuselah factor is hemorrheology. It's how can we improve our blood fluidity. I will tell you the amazing connections between blood fluidity and disease and what we shared today that connected with traditional native wisdom. You don't want to miss that because we're going to take that up in our final segment. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm reporting from things that happened at the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019 here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when we come back, primary prevention of diabetes, how you can prevent diabetes ever from knocking on your door or on the door of those you love. It relates to blood fluidity, something I'm calling the Methuselah factor. We'll give you some great pointers that can help you stay healthy and perform better. Don't miss it. Dr. DeRose, I'll be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm continuing a show that I'm recording from actually my hotel room here at the really beautiful River Spirit Resort. It is a property that is managed by the Muscogee Creek Nation here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it is the venue for the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019. I've shared with you some of the things that inspired me from the conference, but I did not get to take in as much of the conference presentations because I was doing some of my own presenting here. So I'm trying to give you some of what I shared because I realize that many of you likely were not here at this venue with us. We're speaking about how we can decrease chronic diseases in our communities, how we can decrease our own risk, and it has to do with something called hemorrheology. We're trying to help people in this latest initiative throughout Indian country optimize their blood fluidity. So we've been making available a book of mine called The Methuselah Factor. It's available on Amazon, so other people are getting the book beside those in, uh, in Indian country. But we're providing this book right here in this venue to individuals. They're actually signing up for it. We're, we're shipping them to them. And we're making available a accompanying video called Longevity Plus. With those videos and the book, any community group can do a four- or five-week wellness emphasis once a week. Now, the other resource I want to tell you about that accompanies this that's totally free to everybody are a series of YouTube videos. Those YouTube videos actually cover some of the same ground, but they talk exclusively about diabetes and high blood pressure. So you can go to my website, which is compasshealth.net, compasshealth.net. So compass, like giving you direction, health, uh, the opposite of disease, .net. And if you go to our free materials section, you'll find a link to our YouTube videos, or you can search on YouTube. The program is called 30 Days to Natural Diabetes and High Blood Pressure Control. So what does all this have to do with preventing disease, and how does it work? What the research is showing us, and I won't go through a number of examples that I used today in my breakout session. I showed graphics talking about how if you're worried about glaucoma or macular degeneration, two leading causes, by the way, of vision loss as we get older, if you improve your blood fluidity, you decrease your risk of those causes of blindness. If you're concerned about a stroke or a heart attack, improve your blood fluidity, and you decrease your risk of those conditions. There's evidence that you decrease your risk of certain cancers or the spread of cancer if you've been diagnosed with cancer if you improve your blood fluidity. So all of this has to do with hemorrheology. But what I'm especially excited about is as we present in the book, in the videos, in live presentations that I give on this topic, hemorrheology in improving our blood fluidity is not just about avoiding killer diseases. It's not just about retaining our vision. But it's also about other things that help us look, feel, and function better. They've studied athletes. If athletes have better blood fluidity, they will perform better. They've studied mental processing. If you're concerned about losing the mental edge, you want to improve your blood fluidity. 
Okay? So that's less material than I typically give to try to drive home the point that this is really an important science. But we need to move on and talk about practical things that you can do to improve your blood fluidity. The free online videos, it's a 30-day program, one video a day. You watch that, we give you a specific challenge each day, something to do that will improve your picture as far as diabetes and high blood pressure. And we use that same outline, that same structure, virtually the same, 30-day challenges as we go through the Methuselah Factor book. Each of the last 30 chapters, basically a specific daily challenge. Let me tell you about some of those challenges just in general. One of them is to eat more plant foods and especially eat more beans. So as I was speaking to the audience today, everybody was telling me either verbally, some people actually spoke up, other people with nods of their head, that beans are part of the native culture, it seems like, in most places where I travel. Now, I know if you native Alaskans, maybe we're not eating many beans. But you look at the lower 48 states, most tribes that I've had interaction with, beans were one of their staples. Many of the tribes, including someone in the audience today talking about her tribal roots, the three sisters, corn, beans, squash. Someone came up to me after my presentation, and they said, Dr. DeRose, beans are high in carbohydrates. I explained to them, though, beans have blood sugar stabilizing properties. I told this woman just what I have told others. The research shows eat more beans and your blood sugar will be better. Beans have cholesterol-lowering effects. Beans have effects that help you be more satisfied, less likely to overeat. So our challenge in the Methuselah Factor book, our challenge on the videos, the free videos online, is to try to eat beans every day during your 30-day health emphasis. You catching the picture? So it's a 30-day program, a 30-day challenge, if you will. We encourage people to eat beans. Now, I just have to, as an aside, because I can't interact with you like I did with the group in this live venue, one of you saying, perhaps, well, I can't eat beans. I'm allergic to them. If you're allergic to all beans, avoid them. I mean, I don't want you to have an anaphylactic reaction because you're allergic to something. But in general, beans are a healthy food. Let's move on. What other things do we talk about? We talked about drinking water, drink more water. I shared with them some of the research done nearly 20 years ago now from Loma Linda University showing the impressive changes when you just drink a little bit more water. In this particular study, they looked at individuals who were poor water drinkers, less than two glasses of water per day, compared them to the better water drinkers, more than five glasses of water per day. Do you know what happened? Those drinking more water cut their risk of a fatal heart attack roughly in half. Cut it in half just by drinking a few more glasses of water per day. Powerful message. If you want to improve your blood fluidity, you've got to drink adequate amounts of water. I shared with them a third point in my presentation, and that is the power of fasting. And I explained to them, it was a one-hour workshop that I was giving, so we didn't go through as much as I will sometimes do in a formal training. In fact, last month... I was with a tribe out in California. Actually, it was a coalition of tribes. I was doing a training on how you use this program and how you use these resources. 
and I took quite a bit of time talking about different types of fasts. But what I explained to the group today is what I'm going to tell you because we're reporting on this conference, okay? I told them one example of fasting, you may not think about this, but one example of fasting is simply avoiding refined sugars. So during your 30-day program, you're going to make a concerted effort to avoid refined sugars. You're going to read labels. If it says sugar, if it says high fructose corn syrup, you're going to avoid it. What the research shows is if you get rid of the sugar, you get rid of the high fructose corn syrup, your blood fluidity improves. What other principles did we share today? Several other things that connect with traditional Native wisdom. And people were telling me from their Native backgrounds, these were all values that they held. They didn't have refined sugar prior to European contact. They were drinking more water. They were eating more beans. What else were they doing? They were exercising on a regular basis. Physical activity improves blood fluidity. The research suggests the more you exercise, the better your blood fluidity. That's, of course, presuming you're not overdoing it. You don't have other health conditions. And one of the ways that exercise helps blood fluidity is by decreasing body fat. But even if you lose no weight at all, exercise is going to help you have better blood fluidity. The other two points we made were avoiding addictive tobacco products. Stay away from those commercial nicotine products. Definitely, that's going to mess up your blood fluidity. And then the last point I shared with them is one that really tied back into the whole theme of the conference, and it was simply this. It was connect with others. Connect with others. You know what we're finding in so much of the research? Interconnectedness with our communities, with other people, is a powerful health-giving factor. It's a perfect note to close this edition of American Indian Living on because I've been here at the Tribal Public Health Conference 2019. The theme for it, strength in community, power in connection. Whether you're looking at partnerships between tribes and government agencies, whether you're concerned about adverse life experiences and how to uh, undo some of those effects, whether you're wanting to improve your blood fluidity, one of the answers to all those questions is get connected with other people. Make a difference in other people's lives and they will make a difference in your life. Well, that is all for today's edition of American Indian Living. Hopefully today's show has, again, helped you reconnect with things that will indeed make you healthier and happier. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.